Welcome to Article One, a show about lawmakers, legislation, and the politics that make Congress work. I'm your host, Molly Hooper, longtime Capitol Hill reporter, taking you off camera beyond the halls of Congress to share my one-on-one conversations with Democrats and Republicans in the House, Senate, and behind the scenes. Today, I talk with Eric Uland, one of those vital staffers who has run leadership offices in Senate committees in Congress and has worked with Capitol Hill from a different vantage point as head of former President Trump's legislative affairs team. Now, I've known Eric for years, and he is someone who I, as well as many of my colleagues in the press corps, have gone to to make sense of arcane Senate procedural maneuvers or complex policy matters. In 2006, he was chief of staff to then Senate Majority Leader Bill Frist, who described Eric in a tribute on the Senate floor like this, quote, Eric is gifted with a passion for history, a thirst for knowledge, and a high reverence for the Senate. These talents have made him a uniquely capable advisor and leader in the Majority Leader's office. He contextualizes every Senate debate, recalls appropriate precedent, and draws parallels to moments in history, end quote. And it's for those reasons, among others, I am so glad he came to talk with me for Article One and help make sense of what the heck is going on in the 117th Congress at this very hectic time. So that is where our conversation begins. Now you're going back to impeachment, 50-50 Senate, budget, reconciliation, nominations, all everything's coming together all at the same time. As a former legislative affairs director and yeah. former Senate committee chief of staff, staff director slash leadership staff, director, chief of staff, what do you make of all this? Where are we going right now in Congress? What's going to happen here? Well, in, in a world where there are so many things stacking up, um, I think we kind of revert to the norm. And because rules kind of drive the norm at the end of the day, you're processing nominations, even in this extraordinary period, through committees for principal positions in cabinet departments. Committees are able to meet, they're able to report nominations out, so it's able to take action on at least those top-level nominations while they work to organize themselves. And there's a method for doing that, which they're in the middle of. You have rules of the road for impeachment, which are built in the Senate rules themselves. So They'll have the article come over and absent a further set of unanimous consent agreements. Um, when things start in February, on February 8th, February 9th, everything will be you know, written, written, written to rule, so you work to rule. Got to work out you know, whether or not a budget resolution is coming over soon. Um, there are rules of the road for that. And so in the absence of anything else, you'll default to those rules. So, as I say, as every one of these complex questions kind of comes to Congress and comes to the Senate and the House, there are rules that cover them. In absence of any other arrangement, you have some general ways of understanding what's going to happen next for each one of these questions that are outstanding. Now, let me uh, just jump in here with this whole rules thing. I love that you're bringing this up because you're a man primarily of the Senate. Is that not correct? That's true. And one thing I've learned covering the Senate is that there may be rules, but that doesn't mean they are followed. And a UC can make things, make your rules go away. And the lack of a UC can make things very difficult from a procedural standpoint to move forward. Can you explain just at its basic core, 
to listeners who aren't familiar with the Senate and the House, what exactly a UC is and what it is not? We're talking civics 101 here, kind of, but Capitol Hill style. So you're definitely right that rules are written to be put aside in circumstances. So a UC for uh, Civics 101, UC is shorthand for unanimous consent agreement, which implies that all 100 senators agree that based on a certain set of circumstances facing them, they would like to act this way. They would like to set a time for a vote at later on today or first thing tomorrow. They would like that vote, the, the time before that vote, to look this way in terms of debate, whether or not a point of order is made, whether or not an amendment is offered to a pending amendment or a pending bill, whether or not a motion is made in relation to a pending nomination. So oftentimes from the first moment the Senate comes in until the end of the day, and to be honest, a fair amount of work in the House also is covered by this, both sides, majority and minority, are negotiating under their overall rule framework to arrive at unanimous consent agreements to handle pieces and parts, or in some cases, entire swaths of work of Congress. Most of the work of Congress and most of the legislative accomplishments of Congress that actually occur don't meet front page tests for, for getting into the news or tweeted about or posted on Facebook, Instagram, or whatever. But most of that work that's done is actually done under unanimous consent agreements, whether it is calling up bills that, again, may apply to a certain specific program, a certain locality, a certain instance, and making it through the House and Senate without a recorded vote. Working on nominations that don't require a roll call vote, but need to move through the process and ultimately come to a, a, quite a point of being confirmed. Uh, dealing with pieces parts of impeachment. Uh, can be covered by unanimous consent too. Given what you know of the current makeup of the Senate, the senators, uh, Chuck Schumer, Mitch McConnell, their relationship, it seems a lot rides on the relationship of the leaders of the two parties, especially in the Senate, Chuck Schumer, Mitch McConnell, and of course their committee chair people. Given what you know about Mitch McConnell's relationship with Chuck Schumer, how easy will it be to strike unanimous consent agreements in the future to say, move forward with Joe Biden's agenda? The ability of the two leaders in the Senate to arrive at unanimous consent agreements, uh, to your point, is governed somewhat by the personal relationship between the two, but also involves a lot of other dynamics at play. The relationship between the majority and minority party, various specific members, as you say, the chairman and the ranking member, those who have an interest on an issue, an idea, a nomination. So uh, people's schedules, when they're able to be in town, when they're able to come to work, because lots of people have a lot of other obligations during the course of the day, maybe to discharge. Um, the interest for making sure that you're able to spend time out on the floor speaking to an issue for your constituents back at home who may want to be involved by watching, tweeting, lobbying, and advocating a, a, a position on a piece of legislation or a nomination out on the Senate floor or pending in the House. All those come into play as the Senate and the House leadership meet and talk either directly or through their staffs, interact with each other constantly during the day in order to set Senate schedules and House schedules and move bills and nominations through the process. One key piece of legislation you were involved in was getting the uh, CARES Act passed. 
CARES, I guess you could say 1.0, but not really because there had been two prior bills before the, the major CARES Act came into play. How did that happen? How did that come together so well and so quickly? And, and, and explain just how involved you were in that process. So the piece of legislation, which to your point was after three previous pieces of legislation came together in the, the moment of crisis that we all faced back in March and April. And a lot of it depended on clear, constant communication between members of the administration, members of the Senate and members of the House. Remember, the House was physically already gone. It had left the hill courtesy of Corona. And the Senate, while in session, people were trying to isolate and, and stay away from each other as much as possible until we were finished with our work. So it was a nonstop set of meetings, of conversations, of discussions, of burning shoe leather, of being on the phone, of beginning to explore the use of Zoom and WebEx uh, to interact face-to-face, -face, but sharing information, sharing ideas, negotiating through pieces and parts, taking on board a lot of priorities from the Hill as well as priorities that we had from the administration and calmly, clearly, dedicatedly, often late into the night and starting very early in the morning with then Treasury Secretary, myself, uh, the then SBA Administrator, uh, the outgoing Chief of Staff, the incoming Chief of Staff, the President of the United States participated in several of these conversations as well. Cabinet Secretaries as well called in and, and, and asked to lend a hand or work through substance and, and see where we could narrow differences and resolve questions of disagreement. All were part of the equation of ultimately coming to a point where we had a piece of legislation that was broadly supported on both sides of the aisle, in both chambers, and was able to be signed by the president. So that took a few weeks. That took a lot of time and effort, and it took a lot of goodwill uh, and a lot of trust that was in long supply and people were willing to give each other the benefit of the doubt repeatedly in order to work through at that time and be able to move that piece of legislation through as well as its aftermath. As you remember, we had to deal with uh, funding for small business and making technical corrections along the way, and then taking input as well from members afterwards as various pieces and parts of these bills took effect in order to make sure that we were following through on their intent, we were following through on what we intended to see happen and ultimately provide relief and assistance to the American people while trying to reinforce the economy at the time, reaching out and providing specific assistance to small businesses, people through unemployment insurance and relief, incenting people to remain connected to their workforce, all the things that were in the CARE Act uh, that passed there in April. So what happened in the aftermath of that? You know, I hear from people who wanna know how come Congress wasn't able to pass the, the next big package that ultimately passed in December, but why did it take so long to get that accomplished? How important was the election in getting that next package through? I've talked to Republicans and they point to Nancy Pelosi saying that she wanted to wait until whatever happened with the presidential election. But I also talked to a number of moderate Democrats who were really pushing her, Speaker Pelosi, to move before the election because it was so dire at home. Were you talking to any of those more conservative Democrats? Were people reaching out to you or, or were you still there at that point? This all unfolded after I left the White House and moved to the Department of State. So much of this I was not involved in. You do, though, point to um, the role of, of many members throughout all this. Um, and certainly the problem solving 
problem solver caucus in the House and its analogy in the Senate uh, at the time for both uh, the first four CARES bills and then as they work through the summer and fall was an important aspect of the work that Stephen and Mark and others did in trying to find a way forward with Congress to see if there was a package where we would ultimately have overlap and be able to provide additional relief and reinforcement to the American economy and the American people throughout that summer and fall. It didn't come together, came together in December, thankfully. Uh, and now that um, there's a new president in town, you see people are attempting to work through and begin to understand his policy priorities against the framework of all the trillions of dollars that have already been appropriated um, and, and understand what worked, what didn't, the evolution of the challenges that the pandemic face, uh, presents to us and what we face uh, in Washington and what people face as policymakers and what people face those who suffer uh, the consequences and impacts of the, the pandemic. All those have been evolving since where we were in February, March, and April. And the tools, the public policy tools available to Congress and the executive branch have evolved as well as those needs have, have continued to change over the many months since this first started last January. You know, listeners who, who reach out to me, they just get very frustrated because they say, in times of crisis, sort of this ongoing crisis, why couldn't Congress just get it together and pass something before the elections when people needed it? My question is, why can't Congress in, in times like this get it together and do that at the time that it is needed as opposed to waiting until after, say, you know, a political election? Was there, in other words, was there anything, any way that the administration could have given to appease, say, Speaker Pelosi? Or was she pretty much always going to be stuck with that position that we're not going to get a deal until after we find out what happens with the presidential election? There's a lot of confusion sometimes when it comes to the reporting the next day. Both parties seem entrenched, but it also seemed like there was movement ma being made. So uh, great question. And I think the best people to answer that question are those who participated in the conversations last summer and fall. Again, I was not part of those. I do, but, but, but you've been part of conversations in the past related to, say, immigration reform. Why can't immigration reform happen? It seems to always kind of get close, but then no cigar. Well, I'm happy to unpack on immigration reform. I think everybody remembers in 2006, the Senate and the House each had passed a comprehensive immigration reform package that was not able to marry and finish in time prior to the end of 2006. In 2007, Several Democrats switched their votes in order to stall immigration reform in, uh, in the Senate from concluding. And in 2013, while the Senate was able to move uh, immigration package through under Democratic control, the House Republicans were not interested in the package, and there needed to be uh, an appropriate grounding of what would be able to be accomplished in Congress, the administration at the time was not interested in that evaluation's conclusions and so chose to leave everything um, and, and walk away from it. So, um, but, but I do think in relation to the past few months, it's important for everybody calling you and writing you uh, to at least point out that we had a significant amount of work done in Congress throughout the entire year with all points of view at the table at different times, different formulations, with different questions at issue. 
And ultimately, Congress was able to work through an appropriate package and provide significant reinforcement and relief here last month uh, prior to it adjourning. Now, again, new president, they have new requirements and requests on the table. But because Congress just managed to finish with President Trump work on a, a relief package, I think Congress is being um, very thoughtful about what might be appropriate to act on now, given this volume of resources and programming and authorizations that just came through less than 30 days ago, prior to taking the next step on, on policies and ideas proposed by the administration. We're not rejecting it out of hand. Obviously, people are meeting and having conversations, but we have provided a lot of resources, a lot of authorities, a lot of opportunities for the federal government to react to this crisis no doubt that will continue. And so part of this discussion will be, okay, now that the challenges of the coronavirus and the pandemic continue to evolve, especially as vaccine begins to be, be deployed, what are the best policies and programs that we could take steps forward on as a federal government to continue to provide appropriate relief and assistance while not putting money on policies and priorities that may no longer have as much efficacy or be too much in need. We will soon see what the quarterly economic impact of the evolution of this pandemic virus is. More economic data comes out in the next few weeks in the next month or so. And that will be another piece of the public policy conversation to understand with more um, uh, sophistication what happened as the economy was going up, as the economy went down, as the economy began to restore, and now where are we, where are we going, what's the best policies in order to reinforce rebuilding that economy and bringing it back to where it was prior to the coronavirus erupting here in the States. It's incredible to me how much money has been spent, has been appropriated, and even though there have been oversight provisions included in these measures, how do you even keep track of all the money that's gone out and who's getting it and who's not getting it and who's benefiting when they shouldn't? It just seems like there's going to be a reckoning soon because I just don't know how you track it all. And again, I, I know that there were levers written into the CARES 3. Still, when I listen to the congressional commission that was created, there's just a lot of questions that even the administration has difficulty answering, not because they're doing a poor job or they're not able to stay on top of it, but simply because there was so much money sent out. I'm wondering how that's all going to come together over the next year or so and how the Biden administration is going to handle that with an evenly divided Congress. Well, it's a great question. And uh, the answer is to start, it wasn't just and isn't just the sheer volume of dollars that makes it difficult to, to monitor and track what's going on. It's also that we're still in the middle of the crisis. We're still in the middle of the challenge. We're still in the middle of reacting to the pandemic. And sometimes the hardest thing to do for the federal government is to back up and wait until you're finished. But we have plenty of examples in that regard. So after Pearl Harbor, for example, there were multiple demands for investigations of what happened, but repeatedly, the then president, Franklin Roosevelt, asked Congress to hold off until the war was won to investigate, understand, and ultimately provide a report to the American people about how we found ourselves in a position of prostrate in front 
of the Japanese attack on December 7, 1941. So we have plenty of tools, to your point, that were baked in the various pieces of legislation along the way, in particular the commission. The House, of course, has set up its own oversight committee. The administration agreed that there would be quarterly conversations between the Secretary of Treasury, the Federal Reserve Chairman, and oversight committees of Congress. You have both appropriation committees as well as multiple authorization committees that have the ability to look in, partner with executive branch departments and agencies to understand what's going on and ultimately provide information back to members of Congress and the American people. You have the Government Accountability Office, you have the Congressional Budget Office, a lot of resources available at OMB to flow information back and forth. So there are a lot of institutions, both inside the executive branch and the legislative branch, to provide this oversight, to provide this rich information collection and ultimately data dissemination to understand what happened, what the impact of these programs were, where we could have done a better job, where we did a great job, and then what lessons can we apply moving ahead in a world where we read repeatedly the potentiality for this sort of uh, virus challenge to emerge will remain constant and may actually accelerate in the in the decades ahead. I guess that that's good to know. I just you know going back to the beginning of this coronavirus, I remember being on a on a TV set up in New York City with CBS News, and I was I was talking to some of my Senate sources who said. And this is when it was all sort of happening. We're having this briefing this morning on the coronavirus, this coronavirus thing. And this is in the middle of impeachment or actually sort of the beginning of the Senate's um, impeachment trial. And and I remember hearing about it, but not as much because, of course, impeachment took center stage. Then all of a sudden impeachment was over and we found ourselves kind of in the throes of this coronavirus. And just from your perspective, looking back, since since you were there, you were in the middle of it how much time was devoted to dealing with the coronavirus and impeachment? Because it seems like you guys were being tugged in, in so many different directions, but these were both major things that were happening to the White House or involving the White House. How did you manage those different crises, so to speak? So again, I'm sure you'll have a chance to talk to a lot of smart and capable people who were involved in this. Um, you know, from the very beginning. There was a significant amount of time dedicated to focusing on what we were learning as it began to come out of China, in addition to what we saw in media and, and press reports. So to your point, very early on, we decided that it was important that Congress be apprised of what we knew and how we were attempting to both take that on board and, and react to it, as well as invite their opinions and their perspectives. So we worked hard to set up uh, that initial briefing, uh, for which turnout was relatively reduced. Uh, and I say that only because as the briefings continued, the attendance mushroom, it's, it's skyballed. Um, you know, we had uh, a moment, for example, um, not too many weeks into the challenge, where we just simply ran out of room in the house uh, for all the members who needed to hear from our health policy experts what they knew and where they were going and what they were trying to handle. Um, so we had, uh, by the time we were, were well into uh, the midst of this, we had several hundred briefings that we conducted with partners at HHS, CDC, FDA, either in person, on the phone, 
through WebEx and Zoom, through discrete phone calls involving everybody from the president and the vice president to, as I say, cabinet and, and agency leads, uh, as well as scientists for members of Congress to be able to ask questions, understand what we thought we knew, where we were headed from a policy perspective, provide their input and reaction, um, ask questions about resources, and ultimately partner with us as we wrote each piece of legislation that moved through Congress, as well as dealing with what they were hearing from their constituents, their needs, their challenges, and where we could find ways of reacting to that information, or actually doing the outreach, or actually providing, whether it's healthcare, information, resources, all that was part of a very robust back and forth between the Hill and the executive branch. It's often lost in the sturm and drang of the partisan drama that there is a lot that goes on on a regular basis without hostility between the executive legislative branch, no matter which party controls. And I think uh, under President Trump, we were very careful to make sure that we had a significant amount of information flowing to members of all stripes, of all parties, of both chambers, so that they were as informed as we were as informed about what was transpiring as this unfolded. Right. I, it's just It just really struck me at the time that uh, you know, here we were focused on impeachment, this big sort of disruptive event. And, you know, meanwhile, there's under, you know, under under the surface, so to speak. And the media was so focused on impeachment and, and what it would mean. And by the by the time impeachment was over, the coronavirus was kind of coming on strong and impeachment was kind of a, a thing of the past. Like impeachment, what? <laughs> did Did that just happen? It was a very strange, strange time. Looking back at what happened last year, almost exactly a year ago at this time, and seeing where we are now moving to another impeachment, will this be disruptive to the Biden administration, even though his administration is not technically involved? So I think that's one of the challenges that they need to be clear-eyed about, take on board, and hopefully manage to ensure that even though they have a healthy number of new people on their team deployed through departments and agencies, that they are not losing focus on the ability to deliver not just a vaccine built on the foundation that the Trump administration put in place, but everything else that needs to happen to ensure that at the end of the day, our economy is restored to as strong as it was began, and that the impact and consequences of the virus the pandemic and the aftermath are fully appreciated, understood, and that those lessons can be learned and applied in the future. And that finally, in the moment of crisis of managing um, everything that is currently imported to to their plate, uh, that they don't take their eye off the ball on everything else they're responsible for when it comes to foreign policy, when it comes to national security, when it comes to ensuring that Everything is operating smoothly and appropriately in departments and agencies. There's been a partisan change of power. I get that. That's what the the voters selected. That's perfectly within their right to do. But it's incumbent on the incoming administration to make sure that no balls are dropped across the entire waterfront, not just in this area of the pandemic, and making sure that vaccine deployment continues to accelerate based on everything the Trump administration put together. 
And just and just for a second, I wish you could explain to to listeners how extraordinary Operation Warp Speed really was in dealing with sort of the eliminating unnecessary red tape, keeping the stuff that was needed, of course, for safety, efficacy purposes, but really the effort that the federal government in terms of dollars, the room for innovation and trial and error, just what a huge deal that was because when it comes to normal like vaccines, they don't come this fast. And part of the reason why they don't happen this fast is because they have to deal with a lot of that red tape and bureaucracy. It's very expensive. They don't have the partners in the federal government. And just how difficult normally something like an Operation Warp Speed would be to implement with members of Congress and the administration. So thanks for the question. And absolutely, regulatory development is a tortuous process, primarily because there's a significant amount of investment in an architecture of safety, an architecture of investigation, an architecture of comparison, an architecture of uh, validation that oftentimes includes not just trial work here in the United States, but checking on what's going on overseas, uh, a lot of investigation well before you get to the, the point of deciding whether or not to actually put your chips on a potential vaccine candidate and then see it move through that process, which we've all learned a lot about here during the course of the year. So um, I think one of the great insights early on as it became clear that this protein was relatively simple to model and relatively simple to address, I emphasize relatively because it's still a challenge, but relatively simple to address, was examining the vaccine process and then understanding what in the in the needs for time and enhancing the safety of American people could be compressed um, or moved in the process to, to a different stage appropriately um, in order that companies would be able to come to the table and put candidates forward. In addition, we made very clear at the outset that we were open to and ultimately funded an exercise where multiple vaccine candidates could be in development at the same time, resourced in whole or in part by the federal government, that their production and their dissemination processes could also be stood up early uh, and simultaneously, and that as vaccine made it through the system and ultimately was approved, that we would have the ability to, uh, as federal government in partnership with state localities, um, take that work product, uh, the vaccine process and the FDA approval process, uh, and move it out into the field. So you take um, the average length for most vaccine development, which is counted in years, you see it cut back to months in this case, and then you see a significant amount of product being able to be moved out into states and communities where, again, there's structure there for that last mile and ultimately getting product in arms um, well underway. And there's a lot left to do, a lot more vaccine candidates that potentially could be approved, a lot more deployment necessarily, and then a lot of long-term monitoring afterwards. But it's something that people should be proud of that their government stepped forward and was able to do without a lot of, of drama. And 
one of the reasons there wasn't a lot of drama was because there was a significant partnership, again, on a bipartisan, bicameral basis with members of Congress. We're really um, taken with the concepts that became part of Operation Warp Speed, as well as the resources that Congress provided to ensure at the end of the day, this vaccine was available to the American people. That was gratifying to us as people who are negotiating legislation, gratifying to department and agency heads, gratifying to the president, uh, the former president um, and his senior team that there was so much support in Congress for getting this vaccine produced and out. Uh, and so, like I say, something that people should be proud of. Which members were you surprised were so involved? I mean, members of, of the Democratic Party or even even members of the Republican Party who typically hadn't been as involved or as, as how should I put this, cooperative or <laughs> because you got a you got a few in every bunch. Um. I don't like that. But yes, there were interesting novel voices who had not had moments in, in the wide healthcare field um, in the past, but were able to put their private sector or previous experience head to use and come to us and say, especially when it came to the simultaneous development side of, of the house, look, this can work and let me tell you why. It's worked in this specific instance. I participated in this. In the private sector, we as business did this. Um, and that provided additional um, confidence that this way of approaching vaccine development and production, ultimately distribution, would not only find willing partnership in the private sector, but would be very, very, very efficacious. Remember that at the beginning of this, you're hearing from really incredibly intelligent people at FDA and, and other regulatory bodies about the way it's been done in the past. And they're absolutely right. I take nothing away from them. Their roles and responsibilities make sure that the medicines we consume are as safe they can, as they can be, that the food we eat is as safe as it can be. But at the same time, putting these new concepts forward and working ultimately in partnership with the Hill, but also these institutions who are critical, who play critical roles, I should say, in processing vaccines um, uh, was really heartening. And for all, again, the, the drama and the way people wanted to breathlessly cover this at the time, I think, again, people can look back at that and find some very significant positive lessons for accomplishment for the federal government that when the chips were down, pushed hard ahead in a smart, wise, and ultimately successful way. Will we, as part of the after action report, discover things that we may have to fix going ahead or things to be conscious of in the future. I'm sure that'll be the case. Again, whether it's members on the Hill, committees, various outside organizations, GAO, C CBO, whatever, to investigate in the aftermath. But I also think that they will discover a lot that went right, a lot that went well, a lot of benefits to the American people for what we did when, uh, when we had to. Well, we're looking for names here, Eric, because I... <laughs> Because I I talked to I've, one of the, the the features I guess of Article One is really talking to lawmakers about times that they've worked across the aisle and were able to to move forward bipartisan legislation or form um, you know uh, not necessarily unlikely but 
unusual partnerships with with individuals across across the aisle at times when it didn't seem like anybody was working across the aisle because the dirty little secret is there's a lot that does get done in Washington DC that people just don't know about they don't they don't know about it because it's not sexy it's not full of animosity and headlines and mean tweets and and all that stuff but work does get done on a, on a separate but kind of related note, oh man, sure. Senate power sharing agreements of the past, 50-50 yes. Senate. How's this going to work? So great question. And as uh, you and everybody watching knows or listening knows, uh, Senator Schumer and Senator McConnell are busy negotiating that. So this is the third time power needs to be shared in the Senate as a result of an equal division between the two major parties. Uh, the first time was in 1881. The second time was in 2001. Third time in 2021. So I guess whenever there's a one, be on the lookout for power sharing. Um, so there's uh, a couple of models uh, based on history that, that people look at. Obviously, the 2001 example is the most prominent model. That sticks in everybody's mind. Committees equally divided. Money for operations pretty much equally divided. The ability of the majority to control the agenda through the vice president, uh, pretty clear. The opportunity for the majority to move legislation and non nominations through Senate, um, preserved, protected, and enhanced by a piece of uh, process that the majority and minority can agree to, so that, uh, especially in the case of nominations, a room in committee, the full Senate has the opportunity to pull them out of committee and put them on the floor for action. So over the course of, uh, you know, the last week or so, there have been a lot of serious conversations between the majority and minority. I expect at some point there'll be an arrangement arrived at. But for the moment, even in the absence of an arrangement, the Senate is functioning. Committees are able to get together and report nominations out, even though, oddly enough, Democrats run the whole Senate. Republicans are still chair of most committees. Um, many committees now have lost Republican members. So in some cases, they're dominated by Democrats, but the Republican is the chair. Um, and at least moving these major department and agency heads through and out to the floor for roll call votes. Um, you can also perhaps see moments where for the next few weeks, if you can't quite get an arrangement yet, that there could still be unanimous consent for pulling some of these nominations through and forward um, and seeing action on them. Um, so the leaders will ultimately present an arrangement to their members and the Senate for review, hopefully in a cooperative manner. And then uh, the whole public will be able to evaluate the arrangement they've arrived at. So how important will Joe Biden's legislative affairs office be? Maybe you can explain a little bit about what the White House legislative affairs office does. Obviously you were that for, for a while for President Trump. And you've worked with the Office of Legislative Affairs. How important will it be for those people to be reaching out to the Hill, obviously to Republicans and Democrats, to move forward Joe Biden's legislation? Their role is very critical. They serve as the principal ambassadors on behalf of the president himself directly to Congress, to the House, to the Senate, both leadership, the chairman and, and ranking minority members, uh, but ultimately every member. And the Legislative Affairs Office, I'm sure, is going to be organized to energetically prosecute the president's agenda on behalf of him up on the Hill every day. 
They do that through a variety of ways, obviously direct outreach, even in the age of Corona, still a lot of work um, on the phone uh, through WebEx and Zoom and in person. They do that through um, a variety of methodologies as um, the legislative affairs operations and departments and agencies are staffed out. Those become supplementary and amplificatory advocates for the president's agenda uh, steered by um, the, the president's legislative affairs team inside the White House. Um, they need to be involved in all significant conversations ongoing about the president's agenda primarily legislative, but not only legislative, because so much what a president and a vice president can do outside of the legislative arena, nevertheless can have impact upon the hill. People might not like a policy decision or an announcement or a foreign policy choice or national security execution. And so they wanna make sure that they are cognizant of those decisions, the choices being made and the ability to communicate why the president is, is deciding to do what he's doing or why the Secretary of Defense is executing the way he's, he's doing um, so that members know where they can go for answers, know where they can go for advocacy for information, know where they can go for the biggest things, meeting our conversation with the president to the very smallest. Uh, I have a constituent who has an interest in seeing um, my uh, 4-H award. Um, can you make sure that that happens? Then everything in between. Um, so really, your alleged affairs team, as I say, needs to be fully integrated in the operations of the White House, work cooperatively with the vice president and her team, um, be part of the larger discussion inside the entire executive branch, and then serve as not only the advocate for the president, but his eyes and ears, feedback, input. Uh, opinions and, and observations uh, above and beyond everything a president does, a vice president does, these principals and departments and agencies, as well as significant actors inside the White House, the head of NEC, the head of NSP, um, et cetera. So there's going to be a lot that the Legend Affairs team has the opportunity to say grace over on behalf of the president uh, and the vice president in pushing that agenda forward. Um, and a lot, I'm sure, of really capable people um, to do that on behalf of the president. Obviously, he's hired a strong team to begin with. Um, hopefully, they are working not just with the majority and their Democrat friends, but the minority as well, seeing where partnerships could be developed, where conversations are at least able to be had and doors are open. Um, and that even if at the end of the day, there's not an agreement on the policy of the president and the majority that nevertheless, there's an opportunity to make voices heard from the minority and that the president and his team have taken the perspectives of the minority on board before they move on out on wherever they're headed. Now, are these individuals, are they part of leadership meetings? Like, the, will they be part of the Democratic leadership meetings? Were you part of the Republican meetings? When you're saying hands-on, people wanna know how hands-on that is exactly. Well, that'll be a choice made between the president and his team and the Democratic leader of the Senate and the Democratic leader of the House. And you've seen all sorts of different models over the years. I believe there was a pretty stark line drawn between um, Senate and House Democratic leadership at the beginning of 2009 and President Obama's um, where they did not physically participate in many of the discussions that were ongoing 
amongst Democratic members up on the Hill. Um, some of their legislatures probably suffered as a result because of that bit of, of separation, uh, alienation between the ability of President Obama and first legislative affairs team to gather information, um, to make the president's case directly, to understand the dynamics at play on the Hill and be able to report back to the president uh, directly in real time. Um, so, like I said, it'll be part of the conversation that I'm sure has already been held between the president, the vice president, the speaker, and the majority leader, and we'll continue to unfold. We'll see how it plays out here in the weeks and months to come. Well, Joe Biden is, is a creature of the Senate. I still refer to him as Senator Biden. Even though I know he's the president, I've always known him as Senator Biden. What kind of impact do you think that will play on how involved he is with what's going on on Capitol Hill in terms of moving his agenda forward? When you were working in the Senate, Senator Biden was there for many years. What role did he play at that time? How involved was he actually in writing legislation and, and coming up with it and getting the deals done? Or was he more of a, I wouldn't want to say show pony, haha, but somebody who kind of takes up the legislation and talks about it, but isn't as involved in the getting the deal done aspect of it? I think during Senator Biden's tenure as chairman of the Judiciary Committee and as ranking member of the Judiciary Committee, he was very involved in details and getting legislation through on priorities that he had identified. Um, even, you know, many times on, on priorities that did not find a lot of favor amongst uh, congressional Republicans, Senate Republicans. Uh, but he knew his bill. He knew his brief. He was very well prepared. Um, and he was very directly engaged. And you saw that play out as well during his tenure as vice president, where over and over and over again, in challenging moments, especially once Republicans became uh, the majority in the House and then later in the Senate, he stepped forward and served both as an essential bridge to and fro the administration on the Hill, but also worked out and hammered out the details of very significant pieces of legislation under, um, under President Obama. So I would expect that some of that will continue. The role and responsibilities of the president are much larger than just being the legislator in chief just being the acting majority leader and, and acting House Speaker combined. Um, and so I, I do expect his facility uh, interactivity to be healthy, but not to predominate his presidency, because again, he has a lot of other responsibilities as any president does, and we'll spend a lot of time focused on those as well. What do you make of all the executive orders and, or the executive actions he's taken already? It is clear that a president has a significant amount of uh, executive powers that he's able to bring to bear. I'm not surprised on many of the steps he's taken. He campaigned on them, or at least they were part of his candidacy as he went through um, his work to earn the nomination and then ultimately uh, be elected as president. So while I'm disappointed uh, in significant regard for some of the things he's undoing, um, nevertheless, those are presidential powers, and we've seen those exercised by Republicans, by Democrats, and I'm sure we'll see those powers exercised in the future um, as we go about um, presidencies unfolding. So the president's taking some early actions with executive orders. I am sure that, as well, there will be efforts driven by the administration, the Biden administration, as well as the Hill majority, to undo executive acts by uh, resolutions of approval under the Congressional Review Act. President may also, and the administration may also push 
to impede, delay, otherwise obstruct other executive choices of President Trump and Vice President Prince through the appropriations process by leaving out resources, putting barriers up for execution of, of those policies, and perhaps ultimately attempting to spearhead passage of pieces of legislation that undo uh, significant accomplishments of the Trump administration uh, legislatively through bills that make it through the House and Senate and are ultimately signed into law by President Biden. It's, it's interesting because what I have noticed is when one party is in power, they tend to move forward gung-ho, moving their agendas in terms of Obama. It was Obamacare and climate. At first, remember, it was the carbon tax. It seems like they almost go so far that voters come out two years later and vote their party out of power in the House or the Senate? Well, there's no doubt if you look at history, um, it is an interesting swing back and forth between a general election and an off-year election. Do the early actions of a president have a role to play and an impact on what happens in that off-year election? Most political scientists do agree that they probably have an impact. Their scale and scope um, are open to interpretation. Lived through some uh, tides washing Republicans in an off-year election. Lived through some tides washing out Republicans in off-year uh, or presidential elections. So um, there's no doubt that choices that this president will make will be part of what's evaluated at the ballot box uh, next year in 2022. Here's a question for you. Just as somebody who has who's been on Capitol Hill for many years, I, I want to go to that to what happened on January sixth in terms of this this whatever you want to call it, the storming of the Capitol or the assault on the Capitol. As a guy who's worked in the Article One branch of government, what did you think when you saw that happening? I wasn't so much thought, Molly. It was emotional reaction. I was apprehensive for the safety of everybody who was there on the Hill. I was gobsmacked that people would storm the Capitol. Um, we've seen efforts to storm the White House and storm the Supreme Court here over the past four years. Never in my wildest dreams, but I think people would arrogate to themselves the belief that they could storm the Capitol. And I was heartsick to hear that people died as a result of this. So, like I say, it's a combination of emotions, much more than thought, that gripped me that day and that continued to um, seize me now. That good friends, people I work with, people who I may disagree with politically, but nevertheless um, are elected members of the House and Senate, um, were chased out of some of the most significant and hallowed spaces of our democracy um, and left to, to uh, near feeling as though they're left to their own devices in evacuation spaces, just uh, in any way, shape or form, uh, a reprehensible moment um, and, and a very low moment for our democracy. How, how do you think it happened? Do you think the president prompted this or was this, more of a planned... Sorry, you kind of broke up there at the beginning, but if the question is, how did this happen? I believe that if I understand things correctly, there's an effort underway uh, driven out of Congress to try to understand that. Um, and actually, there will be a lot that we will look 
there are days and weeks apart. Basically, do you think President Trump caused this this riot? I don't believe that I know enough to jump to that conclusion right now. I think based on what I've read so far, based again, built on a lot of smart analysis uh, and reporting, it appears that there were a lot of agendas at play that day and that there may have been significant cohorts of individuals in attendance uh, at the Capitol uh, and storming the Capitol with very malign intent were not part of any of the discussion going on at the president's conversation and, and rally. But that's what a well-grounded, well-resourced, well-staffed, and appropriately charged work, uh, whether in a commission or a committee, uh, to investigate and understand will ultimately have all facts laid on the, on the table for everybody to assess. So, so what's your take on this impeachment effort that's underway right now, that's going to the Senate, this, this impeachment 2.0? What do you make of it? I believe there's been a lot of smart analysis already about the constitutionality of impeaching a former federal official. Um, I think it's clear based on the historical record and the precedents, which there are not a lot, but based on the precedents as we understand them, that the Senate does have a jurisdiction here. Uh, it's very clear constitutionally, and in some of these instances where federal officials had resigned, but the impeachment case came to the Senate, the question of jurisdiction was explicitly dealt with, and a majority of the Senate agreed that they did have jurisdiction. However, no former federal uh, official has ever been convicted of impeachment charges in the Senate. That, too, is a very powerful precedent. Uh, I think I speak, speak strongly to this moment. But I expect that over the next few weeks, as both sides file briefs, as more information comes to light, um, as people frame up their cases, we'll have both a better understanding of the various pieces of history at play, but also the choices that members are facing uh, in the Senate. Have, have you been in touch with any of your former Trump um administration colleagues have, have you heard from the president how's he doing i appreciate the question that i really won't get into molly it's not appropriate gosh you're so good that's very nice i had to ask it because otherwise they'd say why didn't you ask so i had to ask but um I get it. fair enough but no it's putting my diplomacy hat on not a question that i can answer but thank you for asking oh well you're quick you're welcome i'm glad i could do you that favor no but I really appreciate you talking to me because there's a lot that's not known about the Senate in particular. I talk, I've talked to mostly House members and um, the Senate is its its own beast and creature, if you will. And inc incidentally, it's, it's interesting because I, I was thinking of you the other day. I went back and let me grab this. And I was reading my Alan Drury, A Senate Journal. And there you, go. you were the one who told me to look for the war diaries. I don't know if you remember that, but it's it's one of the best books. And I was I was reading. I do remember that? I was reading through the intro or the prologue. Where is it? First impressions. Alan Drury was basically describing how important Congress is, and then he goes to describe Franklin Roosevelt, and he said. 
because he's talking about partisans. He goes, in his closing months in office, there was an ugly hostility, a bitter jockeying for political advantage and power, mutual mistrust and dislike that constantly clouded his relations with the Congress. And I don't know if it's necessarily true of President Trump or whatnot, but a lot of what Alan Drury describes in the in the prologue to the book basically describes a situation that it feels like the country is in now of of a lot of tension, people at odds, but the importance of of members of Congress. And so um, I really appreciate you suggesting that book and also and also just talking to me so my listeners can hear more about how the Senate operates and to feel somewhat optimistic that we can move forward with bipartisanship in some in some way possible. Well, I think your viewers have a lot to be optimistic about because the institution of Congress, as well as the institution of the presidency and the court, managed to transcend many of the momentary challenges which wash ashore uh, to their doorsteps. To your point about Drury's introduction, most of Drury's uh, focus uh, that you just read out loud is actually on Congress's frustrations itself with the president. The president was, as we all know, uh, President Roosevelt, fairly serene about Congress. His biggest problem, uh, his biggest apprehension about Congress came in 1944 when the then Senate Majority Leader resigned over a presidential veto of a small piece of tax increased legislation, uh, and the president had to eat crow. Incidentally, for listeners, if you want to get Mitch McConnell talking about anything, just bring up Alvin Barkley, and and he'll he'll talk about it for ages. Absolutely. So uh, President Trump um, dealt with a Congress that had never, ever had an individual from the private sector uh, run and become president uh, first time out. Um, and so there was a lot of, there's a vacuum of information, a vacuum of conversation, a vacuum of familiarity with the president that's part of my job and part of many others' um, job over four years was to try to uh, fill in some way, shape, or form to reduce that alienation and create closer bonds. In some cases, we were successful. In other cases, we weren't. But it is systemic that every four, eight years, whenever a new president comes to town, that it's important that the Ledge Affairs team, as well as other principals uh, in the president's orbit and the president himself, find that time and invest that energy in creating those strong relationships with Congress. And, and Drury, I think, points out, and provably in President Trump's case as well, and we'll see in President Biden's case, President Biden's case too, I am sure, that there will be a lot of strong relationships, that there will be a lot of strong bonds, that there will be clear lines of communication, and there will be shared uh, agendas that sometimes are going to be bipartisan because of the sorts of challenges that, that face the country and that the president, Congress, uh, the court as necessary will find a way forward, just as it did with President Trump in office for his first four years and his first term. Well, it was it was definitely interesting covering Congress, a Congress that was dealing with a new kind of president, as you said, somebody who was from the private sector and wasn't necessarily measuring his words and thoughts in regards to what Congress would do. I think that it was refreshing to many of them, but it was also off-putting and unsettling 
in part because it was so unfamiliar. And that was just fascinating, covering <laughs> covering Congress's reaction to this this new president in town, who, when you look back at it, aside from the last month and a half, whatever that was, it was. But before that, President Trump was actually able to accomplish a lot of bipartisan deals. And even when I point to, out to the more liberal Democrats who I talked to on the show, I'm, I say, President Trump didn't get us into f any foreign wars. Oh, well, you know, that's just, you know, they can't really say anything about it. And, um, and in fact, is taking us out of Afghanistan. And so it, it'll be interesting to see how the relations with Congress are recorded in the history books. But he actually was able to to do a lot in terms of bipartisan deals. And of course, people point to criminal justice reform, but there was more beyond that. And hopefully viewers, listeners, and readers will be able to learn more about that the farther we go away from the Trump presidency, because it seems like there really was a lot accomplished that just wasn't covered. Completely agree. Again, as we talked about earlier, so much is done by unanimous consent and below the headlines. Um, but the record is, the domestic record, policy record of President Trump is quite significant. It does reflect uh, bipartisanship in many, many, many significant instances. Um, it wasn't just coming to town to reduce taxes, um, undo the worst pieces of Obamacare. It was a rich record, which is replete with examples of significant democratic support and bicameral support, um, as well as Republican support um, that made it through Congress to his desk or that he accomplished himself with the various executive powers and authorities that he had. So while the president, the, the current president, President Biden, number 46, is busy working on undoing some pieces and parts of 45's agenda and legacy, there will also be many things that he will be asked to undo that ultimately he will discover have significant democratic support nationally, on the state level, locally, that we will elect not to undo because they are durable and sustainable accomplishments that have really merited a lot of support and demonstrate a lot of accomplishment by 45, by President Trump. Well, you can feel proud of that, Mr. Eric Ulan, sir. <laughs> well, thank you, Miss Molly Hooper, ma'am. And thank you so much for talking to me. I, I really appreciate it. I know my listeners will be tickled to hear from you. And again, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. You bet. Thanks for the opportunity, Molly. Very much appreciated. It's great okay. to see you. Great to see you. Until then, I reserve the right to revise and extend my remarks. <laughs> Without objection, so ordered. So ordered. <laughs> Bye. Bye. That was Eric Euland, a font of wisdom on all things Article One. A big thanks to Eric for coming on the show this week, and thank you for listening. Our editor was Tony Mitri. If you like what you heard, please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. Feel free to send me an email at molly at article1podcast.com or send me a message on Twitter at Molly Hooper. We have some fantastic senators and House members lined up for the next few weeks, Republicans and Democrats, so be sure to send questions or comments my way. Until then, I reserve the right to revise and extend my remarks.